You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. All right, everybody, our guest today is Zach Yurch. Zach is the head of revenue at Sempsi. Sempsi is uh, an insure tech player. I'm going to have Zach uh, break that down a little bit more. But first, Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks, Callan. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm, I'm excited for this one. For our listeners, Zach was the first person that I hired. And there's an interesting story on that one just in, in general. But Zach, in your own words, what are you doing at Sempsi and what is Sempsi? Sure. Yeah. So I'm head of revenue at Sempsi, right? So I run partnerships, the sales team, conferences, basically anything that generates revenue for the company. Sempsi, we started out as a commercial lines insurance rater, right? So from a insurance agent standpoint, in the past, agents have had to go from carrier to carrier to get multiple rates. Takes 20, 30, 40 minutes each carrier, and you're entering the same information, right? So Sempsi is actually uh, a take on an old acronym where it's S-E-M-C-I. It was single entry, multiple company interface. And what we've done is we've just taken that and the input that you have with Sempsi, as far as a commercial rater goes, is you're answering one question, it sends it to multiple places that are asking the same question, right? So you're essentially saving the agent time. Now, where we've gone with that is we've gone further than just getting the rate. We're actually a marketplace now where we can actually give you access to commercial carriers, right? So you might have access to certain markets, but you get one piece of business that is outside of your appetite. And now Sempsi is going to have a carrier that you can place that with, right? And you don't have to go through the entire appointment process just for that one piece of business. You can just place it with Sempsi. Okay. So if people, for any of the listeners that that maybe are not in the kind of the insure tech space or insurance world, the challenge is, is that the model is typically very archaic and you have to go to each individual insurance carrier to get a rate that can take upwards to almost an hour. So using this product, one of the features is that you can get multiple rates back very quickly. Right. And in addition to that, a big challenge within insurance agencies is actually getting the ability to sell a particular carrier. Correct. And they can go through you, which makes that, that takes away that pain point. Right. And yeah, sorry. I assume that every podcast I do is based on insurance. So uh, <laughs> I just assume there's like a base level of knowledge. So when it comes to that marketplace side of things, an insurance agency actually needs a certain amount of business to get appointed with a carrier as well. So if they just have a one-off piece of business, it's not going to be enough to get that appointment. They require minimums typically. So that's why we offer that. And that's why it's a good value add. That makes total sense. So prior to this, where did this all start? Where did your kind of career start out just in general? <laughs> so out of college, I started out selling plastics to retail stores, right? And at the time, my uh, title was outdoor or outside, <laughs> outdoor, <laughs> outside sales rep. So when I handed them my card, they knew they were going to get sold. <laughs> <laughs> there was no account executive or, you know, SDR. It was just straight up. I'm here to close you up. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was out of Cleveland. It was the first job that would take me because I had to start paying student loans, you know? So, and I would have to compete with China on plastic prices and we were about five times as much. So it wasn't a terrible job. It wasn't a good fit for me because I'm not the typical like old school, like, you know, wear a suit to work, pound on the door. You know, I'd like to find different ways to go about things typically. And that was, it was just too old school. Like the 
CEO, the VP, they'd all been there for 30, 40 years. And I was like the first sales rep that they brought in outside of that. So it, it ended up being, well, why are we doing this? Well, this is because this is the way we've always done it. And I, that made me kind of pissed off. I'm <laughs> not going to lie. But I did learn, I don't want to like throw out all of the old, you know, sales stuff because I learned so much valuable information just from like the CEO. He would come with me on a couple sales calls and that's where I learned how to ask questions, like how to read people in person. A lot of that stuff still applies today, even over like Zoom calls and things like that. I agree. And I think the fundamentals in general, especially in sales, right? I'm sure it applies to every position, but in sales particular, a lot of those fundamentals are still there. And learning those are important, but you bring up a really good point in that it's when those unwritten rules can't be changed. Right. And it sounds like that's where the frustrating part came in. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a CRM. We, I was calling off of literally a printed out spreadsheet and an old school, like dial the actual number phone. And then I had to run my own quotes myself. It was rough, you know, uh, and that was kind of what made me make my switch to well, it was, what was it at the time? Ally Digital Marketing Solution? Uh, well, it was the shipyard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's where I met Callan. <laughs> and I, what's the story? What's your side of the story of, of me getting hired at the shipyard? Let's, uh, let's hear that. Let's see. When, so you were my first hire that I ever made. I inherited a team when I got promoted into taking just of more in a leadership position. Again, I had the title. The title was just, I was a VP running enterprise sales, but I didn't, I didn't have any reports or anything like that. But then I moved into kind of the VP of sales as opposed to just kind of the enterprise side and then took over a team for the first time. And we were going to expand that team. And there, I remember interviewing a bunch of people and the person in HR was like, hey, this one's pretty good. You were internal referral. And I remember speaking to you and I was like, okay, he's pretty good. Let's get him in here. And my favorite part was it was a done deal. And then you started negotiating. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even like, I want to say it was like at the time, like super trivial. I mean, we're yeah. talking like the difference between like a thousand bucks. Hey man, I was moving from Cleveland to Columbus. You know, I had to sleep on my buddy's floor for a little while because, you know. I was making what twelve bucks an hour or something like that. At the time, I, at the time <laughs> yeah. oh man, I can't remember yeah. exactly what it was, and I hated that we had to put in an hourly, which is one of the most. That was one of the most frustrating things. Oh, I loved it because I just worked sales. super late, and you never reviewed overtime, so it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Come in early, work late. It's awesome. Well, here's the deal: if you were doing work, yeah, and you're yeah, just yeah, well, actually, pong. I wouldn't have anyway. Like, yeah, we played they, ping pong for two hours. We did. We got very good at <laughs> ping pong. <laughs> well, I did. Well, well that's yeah. okay. You got in one. You had one good stretch where yeah. I still probably owe you about. He owes me about lunches. 150 lunches. 150 is aggressive. Yeah. 10 to 20 is probably, yeah, probably the realistic. Yeah. But so anyway, you were my first hire and you ended up coming on. And I mean, I was fortunate. You crushed it immediately. Like you had an immediate impact on the team. It helped set the tone. And I think about this a lot. And I think about this a lot when I've been in other companies as well, is that you know, sometimes when you come in, it's kind of like a college football coach or a pro football coach, right? And they come on and they bring their staff and they're they're recruiting right. people into their system. 
you fit right into the mold that like the culture that we were looking to build. Oh yeah. You worked really hard, very aggressive on the phone, probably <laughs> too aggressive, but it was, it was just totally different. We had such a, you, you helped to build and add to that culture. So the other people that were there on that team that wanted to be a part of that was like, all right, let's go. So that's something I can't talk about enough when you think about the culture of the team. But what about you? I mean, what was it like for you coming into there? It was refreshing because it was a, I would say like technology forward sales role. And that was where it was just like, okay, I was already making probably a hundred calls a day by hand. Right. And I was literally reading the number off of a spreadsheet. Right. And then trying to set an in-person appointment with somebody two hours away. And then I had to, at the time I had to set appointments Tuesday through Thursday, I was expected to be out of the office. Right. And then I stepped into this role where it was just like, okay, I can call a hundred people before lunch and set six demos and, and then the rest of the day is just gravy. And I'll do, I could do the same thing in the afternoon if I had enough leads. Right. And, and it wasn't even nearly as hard. Right. So, and, and we had all this stuff like email templates, click to dial, this stuff came along later. But it was just uh, a game changer. So when that happened and I saw everybody else kind of doing their thing, I was just like, why aren't you guys doing more? Like, you know what I mean? And it's just okay. I, I found over my career, it's a lot harder to tell someone to do something than it is just for you to do it and them to see you doing it and then follow along, right? It was tough because I had a script at first, but the script was so good that we had almost every question covered. So, I mean, that's one of the biggest things in sales is having a great script for new people, because I still remember you basically took me into the conference room and you drew like this skeleton. You're like, okay, refer back to the skeleton. If you ever get lost in the call, refer back to this skeleton of the script, like which portion were you on? And then I just had the script in front of me and it was good to go. Right. I, and it, that was, uh, yeah, that was a game changer. Why do you think those scripts are so important for new people? I mean, you just need to know. Sales is a very repeatable and scalable process, right? So if you're selling the same thing over and over again, especially like from a SaaS standpoint, you're going to get the same questions. So why would you let that person go through like trying to figure out the answers to these questions on their own, right? When you already have something that you know works really well. And I start people off with the script and I say, stick to the script. Do not deviate from the script for probably like your first month at least. And then after that, once you get your own style, then you can deviate from it, but stick to what works, right? If you want to come in, you want to make money, stick to the script. We know it works. We know it's going to equal a demo this percent of the time or every 30 calls or whatever, and just come in and all you have to do is make the dials. Yeah, I agree. And you talked about kind of the skeleton and the skeleton to me is nice to teach, right? Like the script Script is great. I agree. I use it in the same fashion that you do. It's like you have a script that you can lean on. Your goal is to make this your own, but use the script at first to get you to that point. If you try to recreate the wheel too early. You end up rambling, you end up lost, and you end up just sounding like a complete idiot. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I mean, we've recorded those calls and they are bad. Yeah. I mean, March of Dimes, you know, it's... Uh, um, <laughs> oh, sorry. Inside yeah, jokes. We, we got to give some context <laughs> on it. Um yeah, so uh, we had a, uh, I won't say his name, although he'll probably be on here at some point, yeah. but in a phenomenal salesperson, one oh, yeah. of the best I've ever been around. Yep. And he had this line 
where he talked about, he showed a page that it was a, a website page on the March of Dimes. And the person says, hey, what's the March of Dimes? He had no idea. I wouldn't have known. He had said this probably a thousand times at that point and pointed out, oh, March of Dimes, you know, you know what that is. That's what was part of his sales process. And normally everybody would say, oh, yeah, March of Dimes. <laughs> this guy paused him. What's the March of Dimes? So you can hear this said sales rep <laughs> typing in the background, rapidly Googling March of Dimes. And he's just like, it's a walk for, it's babies walking, walk for healthy babies. And then <laughs> it, was, it was so bad. But that's, I mean, that's, he was on script, but someone threw him off his script. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. You got to find, it's got to be pressure test. Now, yeah. in fairness, that happened one time. It was <laughs> not, he, he had probably said that a thousand times, a thousand times, right? Yeah. But I agree with you. I think that's such a good point with sales training in particular is mm -hmm. understand the basics and move on. So you had that and you mentioned kind of the, the that process. So, and then you started to move up pretty quickly within, yeah. at that point, the shipyard before we had spun out. Take us through that just in general. I mean, so in general, I hate when things are outside of my control. It's a, I guess, a blessing and a curse that I think that I can always do something better than somebody else is doing it, right? So I was scheduling these demos and I would be listening to the account executive or whatever take demo at the time. And I'd just be like, you're saying this wrong. You're saying this at the wrong time, right? And so I was just like, all right. I pressed you to, okay, when can I start taking de my own demos, right? And that was a big like bump up. I think we did like, what was the process? We had to schedule and close our own a certain amount or mm -hmm. something like that, which I think still works to this day because that helps people to not sacrifice other people's deals. But that was the big thing is I wanted to be in control of the entire sales cycle and close everything I could because I thought that I could close a higher percentage, right? And I go off script a lot, but it's based off of knowledge, right? So I think that's an important thing for salespeople is like learn as much as you can about the industry that you're mm -hmm. in. And then you don't really need to do a ton of research. Like if you already know what's going on, you should be able to have a conversation. You shouldn't be on script. So I've had sales reps that are great on script, but then as soon as someone asks them a weird question, they get thrown way off. The goal should be to get off script, but still to use that as like your foundation. Kind of got lost in the question there, but. Well, you brought up another great yeah. point though. And I talked about this before on, on LinkedIn. And mm -hmm. I said, if you're in a niche industry, yeah. it is so important that daily you're understanding what's going on in your industry. You know the trends, you know how that impacts your clients, you know how, mm -hmm. what kind of fears and challenges these different changes have on your prospects. And you'll separate yourself out immediately. Yeah. I mean, just being able to talk in their vernacular right. is a big difference. It builds trust. Like if, if you can use the same lingo that they're using, especially in insurance, because if you don't know any of that, I've seen people just get shot down. Oh, yeah. You know? It was the same. And I've been able to through, you know, just different positions that I had. And then especially in consulting, because you see all sorts of different things. It's the same. If yeah. you're selling into a niche, if it's more of a generalist, it's a little bit different. But if you're selling into an industry, into a niche, knowing that because it's, I think the thing that I probably hear more than anything is, well, our industry is a little different. And it is. That's, that's yeah. 100% accurate. Yep. It's up to us. We have to know the differences for that industry. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think that's such a. Well, that goes back to like, what, what was it? The challenger sale? Kind of like knowing someone's business better than they know it themselves almost mm -hmm. so that you can understand 
what problems they're going to face and solve it before they even know it's a problem, right? Yes. Okay. So you're, you're at Smart Harbor and move up there. And then what did you do after Smart Harbor? Well, there was nowhere for me to go up at Smart Harbor because this person sitting across the desk from me, Callan, was there. Uh, so <laughs> it's probably a tough time for Callan, tough time for me too. But uh, one of our competitors had a national sales manager opening mm-hmm. and I saw it. I applied. Honestly, didn't know that I would even get it or not, but I knew the product was really good and they didn't have any salespeople, right? So I applied, answered a few questions, and then I switched and moved over to a company called Forge3. Super small company at the time. I think I was the third employee. I was the CEO, the the COO, and and then me. Mm-hmm. So, and then we just started selling it. And, and at that time we were sending PDFs, having people sign them and bring them back before we switched to DocuSign or PandaDoc. Didn't have a CRM. So that was my biggest learning moment was I had to build this whole thing from scratch. And how do I do it without like, you know, having like a Salesforce admin, right? Or having like, yeah, I mean, or Salesforce intern or- Sure. Yeah. I mean, any of that stuff. And that's when I switched to HubSpot. I mean, I, and I have not switched back, but- that was the next role. And I really wasn't a manager until about a year or so in. I was doing it solo. And then I moved to like kind of like a player coach role where I was a manager and I was still taking demos. What were some of those times in those early stages? You bring up a great point. In those early stages, you don't have all the resources in the world. Mm-hmm. How did you make those selections? How did you decide what was important, what wasn't important? and and ultimately pick what you did we just went as cheap as possible to say the truth but it was uh i just wanted to make sure that we had tracking that was so important it was like email tracking you know i wanted to be able to make calls from the crm i wanted to basically live out of the crm and be able to track every interaction i had with a client and also see when they were interacting with the stuff that i sent them mm-hmm. right and hubspot had that for like I think it was free at first. The free version is pretty good. Yeah. I usually recommend a company start yeah. there. And then and then you can bump up to like maybe 50 bucks a month or something like that. I think Sales Professional gets you five seats at $500 a month too, which gets you everything. And it was automated. They had sequences, all that stuff. And we started out as like mostly inbound. I really wasn't making many outbound calls or anything like that. But outbound is where I live, really. I Inbound is kind of, you know, I view that as like lower on the uh, tier. My- So let's talk about that. How come? Uh, I love inbound, but I set this like standard of like purity of sales and outbound is such a greater feeling when you go out and you hunt someone down, you bring them in and you close that business, right? Rather than someone coming to you saying, hey, I, I want this. I view that more. It is sales to a certain point, but it's also kind of like order taking a little bit, you know, especially in the, the companies I've been at where it really wasn't like. You had to tailor a solution. It was like, okay, hey, I heard about you at Forge 3. I want a website. Okay, here's what we've got. Sign, sign on the dotted line, right? So in your eyes, it's when you've got a lot of inbound coming in for a product that is not a huge, it's not Salesforce, right? You're right. not having to do tons of solution engineering and you've got right. to bring in a sales engineer and you've got to bring in all sorts of different pieces. If you've got a pretty simple product, then- inbound is more order taking than it is. Yeah, it's more, I would say order taking and just like setting expectations. Like you're not really like showing them a need that needs to be fulfilled with your product because they already know, 
right? If, they, if they've come to you for the most part, from what I experienced, they already know what they need. They know you have a good product. It's just really setting the expectation of the process and what they're going to get out of us going forward. That was my biggest mistake with inbound was if somebody came in and they were like, I just want to sign up. And I did that a couple of times and it was a huge mistake because they probably were the fastest to cancel because they just didn't know the process. So every person that was in inbound, I made sure that they took a demo and at least walked through the platform, even if it was quickly, just to understand what they were going to get, how fast it was going to be built and how much it was going to cost. Yeah. I think, and a lot of that is with dependent on the customer and how much your product cost mm-hmm. to be able to put, if can we put a salesperson on that, in my right. opinion, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. And your customer, your customer needed to be set expectations. Right. So that makes sense. I got you there. And the problem is the person that makes a quick decision to join also makes a quick decision to leave. That's what I've found in general. Interesting. Yeah. Why do you think that is? That's like shiny object syndrome. You know, where people are just like, wow, that's cool and new. That's great. And then they get into it. And especially if they hadn't heard the actual demo, they might not even know everything that is included. So they're like, well, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It's like, well, you came up with this picture in your head of what you thought my product was going to be. And I was trying to tell you the whole time, this is what it is. And this Mm -hmm. is what you're going to get out of it. Especially if you don't have a free trial. Yeah. Where, you know, companies like, Slack and Asana and Trello, nine times out of 10, and that's kind of the whole theory of, not theory, that's product-led growth in a nutshell, is I've used this, let's build this for the end user. So when the end user goes to the next company, right? just like what you did at HubSpot, right? You didn't need to demo HubSpot the next time, you can go straight to it. But when you're selling either a zero to one product, something brand new that's never been out there, or that you're doing something different, because I definitely have found there are times when... I've got a lot of inbound. And I, I mean, for me, like there's nothing better. Than yeah, what it's I can it's get. awesome. It's yeah. awesome. I just, I don't know. There's just like this thing in my head, this glory of outbound, right? Where it's just, I feel better when you hunt it down. Well, I it's, think. Hard. It's, it's, it's harder. It's hard. So it's more gratifying. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. So you're growing Forge 3. What were some of the challenges that you came across as you were growing that? So we were a super small company and we were completely bootstrapped, right? So we were living off of the revenue that we had generated. There was no funding. There was nothing like that. So we did have to pay people less and it was hard to find good people that were willing to take less money or that were willing to rely more heavily on commission, right? And that, that's becoming a thing now where these sales reps are expecting these like huge bases and then they're okay with like a capped commission. And I totally get it. I understand. But again, that's just not how I came up through the world. So I, that's a hard thing to swallow, right? To like pay a like new rep, like 70, 80 K base. It's just, or even more like it, it just doesn't jive with the way I think. So at the time we were paying like 30 to 40 grand and then over half of like, you would almost double that in commission, mm-hmm. but you just have to find the right people that are willing to take that leap that aren't just taking it for the base. Right. And I did find some people that were actually willing to take a cut in base because they believed in the product and they made the switch and it worked out for them, which was great. How did you do that? How did you find those people? So I rely heavily on my network, right? So Ed Porter, he introduced me to someone on my team, Kenny, and he was great, did a great job. I value other people's opinions and then I get my own read on people. It's kind of like a sixth sense a little bit, 
right? Just after you've experienced enough people that um, you can tell who's actually has the drive to go get it done and then who's just in it for just a nine to five, right? And I never hire people that just want to stay in their current position because I don't want that for them either, right? I mean, if I'm hiring you to be an account executive, I want to know that you want to take my job in a few years, mm-hmm. right? And not everybody's going to be able to do it, but if you go somewhere else and take a job that's the same as mine, that's a victory for me, right? I hate to see people leave, but it's good for them. And then they're going to go on and kill it. And then it's going to say, okay, it's like coaching in the NFL. Like you see all these coaching trees are like, okay, how many people studied under Bill Belichick? And then, okay, you get somebody that has, you know, trained under Callan or trained under Zach Mm -hmm. and you know, they're going to be good. You start to build a reputation for that. Right. And I've been kind of blessed that I've only had to hire a small team. So I haven't had to hire like 20 people at once because that's almost impossible to do that. Right. It's hard. Yeah, for sure. Or at least to find all those people to start at once. But that I really relied on the network heavily, interviewed them and I gave them like a slight test. I would like send them the script and just be like, all right, I'm going to give you one day, study it. Then we're going to go through it. I'm going to see how you do. I'm not expecting them to be perfect, but I'm expecting them to know some of it. Right. What are you looking for in that? thoroughness too because i would ask them to send me like a follow-up email and just little things like i would provide them with resources and if they just sent me like the full link to the resource that was like a basically a point against them but if they would hyperlink it and say like click here for this link it's just little things like that that i think set you apart from a sales standpoint i don't want to see spelling mistakes i don't want to see any of that right it's not just on the phones it's just attention to detail in general Mm -hmm. yeah because I'm assuming that this aligns more with kind of your core values and what you're trying yeah. to build. Yeah. So I think that's an important piece is one of the best stories I ever heard. And I, and you were there as well when we were touring and they were telling us about Zappos and the culture that Zappos mm-hmm. had built and somebody that was laid at Zappos or somebody from the, the, um, from the, it was a large enterprise company that wanted to understand their culture. Mm-hmm. And they said, and the person was like, Hey, you guys are all late. And they're like, is timeliness in your core values like no it's not in our core values right. like if it's that important to you you put it in your core values it is right. not a part of ours extreme example mm-hmm. but i do think that it's important and i think a lot of times i see you know it's like here's the standard that you need to look for in a salesperson i don't know that i agree with that i think yeah. it's more here's what fits our culture and you brought this up earlier, right? Whether it's kind of like this inbound mindset, outbound mindset, because they're very different. Yeah. And what does that person have? Where some people, you know, it might be a, you're here from nine to five and that's it. And that's okay. And a lot of times when you think of the work-life balance that a a very large company can provide and in startups, it it is harder. It's harder to, I can't promise anybody great work-life balance. I will try the best that I can but if you're in a really early stage startup, especially from one of the first couple of reps, like it's just, yeah. it's hard. It's very hard. The people that you hire have to fit together, right? Because I've experienced that where you'd have one person that is making 80 calls, right? And they might schedule two or three demos. Then you got one person that's going to make 20 or 30 calls and they've scheduled two or three demos, right? So if that person that's making the 20 to 30 calls is only willing to make that amount of calls, it's hard from a manager standpoint to say like, well, you're booking demos, but you're not making enough calls. The issue is then the rest of the team gets mad or like sees you as like babying them basically. Like they're not hitting your activity goals, but they're hitting their demo goals. So you have to choose like, are you going to focus on 
activity and the good of the team, or you can focus on that one sort of like all-star, I guess. And personally, I always focus on the team. I try to get that person to up their activity. I wouldn't necessarily like fire them or let them go, but I'm not going to praise them for not meeting the minimums of activity, I would say. Yeah. I mean, especially if, and this is a huge debate. Yeah. This is probably one of the most debated things I've ever seen in sales in particular in general is activity versus results. Right. And the question is, if somebody's hitting results, do you care if they make one call or a hundred calls and vice versa? If somebody's making a hundred calls, but are getting no results, right. you know, what does that look like? It's a tough question to answer. Yeah. I mean, my thing is if you're making a hundred calls, I can work with you to make sure that you're improving like your call to demo ratio. If you're not willing to make more than 20 or 30 calls and you're still scheduling, there's going to be a time where you hit a cold streak and you're not able to do that. And you don't have the drive to make that activity to get you through that slump. And that's the problem that I've seen people run into is they think that that's going to work for them all the time. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. But it goes back to the thing like, okay, well, if you're making 20 calls, what are you doing the rest of the day? Right. And maybe you're researching stuff and going super in depth, but still 20 calls through eight hours. It's four, you know, one call every 15 minutes. And you know? <laughs> I mean, that I always do that math and just say, okay, yeah, you're, you could be booking six demos, right. And making twice as much money. Is that what you want to do? I don't know. It's a tough debate, but you have to think about it this way. Yeah. That person might be booking two or three demos. But if you are demoralizing the rest of the team, maybe you have five or six other reps that you're demoralizing that are now starting to book less and less demos, it's costing you more than it's gaining from those two or three. It gets to what you just said. It's like, I can't let this person, you know, you can sometimes give the benefit of the doubt because you can typically see improvement in somebody that's working really hard. But that person's like, ah, oh, man, this is tough. Like, yeah. It puts you in a really hard situation. It does because you know that they have it in them and it, it's just, you have to want it. And, and I, I don't know how you coach that. And that is, I've seen people go on cold streaks that are so good. Their conversion rates are so high and then they don't know what's going on, but then they get so mad because I don't want to say it was easy, but it just came so naturally to them that they really didn't have to work at it. Mm -hmm. And then they get frustrated and they sort of shut down. Right. So I'll take somebody that can repeat the process over and over again. That's coachable, that has the drive to have the activity. I'll take those people over a sales prodigy any day. Agreed. Right. I totally agree with that because typically you're going to, they're going to, the sky's the limit for somebody that, that has that, that kind of work ethic and, and humility to be able to, to improve. Right. The, so you guys grew forestry really quickly. Walk us through that. What ended up happening? How did that go? Where do you want me to start? So from the very beginning or? Well, at this point, right. You started to bring on sales reps, yep. right? You got all the kind of the foundation in place. You brought on sales reps. What happened from there? Yeah. So we basically found just lists of prospects to call based on certain criteria that made them a good fit. I mean, you have to find out like who is your ideal client at this time we had. So insurance agents have certain carriers that will actually pay for part of their marketing budgets. So we found all of those agencies and just started calling all of those agencies, right? To sell them on this. And that's really how we found the ideal candidates. And so we started doing more and more outbound. The inbound continued, which was great. And then we just develop more partnerships, right? So we would work agencies to talk to the carriers and then and, and we'd also be working the top end of the carriers as well. So then we'd end up meeting in the middle because the leadership from and carriers I would consider like 
almost like enterprise or partnerships or whatever. Yep. Channel partners. Yeah, I mean, channel I think partners. That's a good way to look at it in this yeah. scenario. And so you'd be working those guys top down and then you'd be work getting these agents to talk to their territory managers and things like that. So that when I go in and I say, hey, I want to meet with you, let's say nationwide insurance, they're going to say, wait, who's Zach at Forge 3? Oh, we've heard from 20 agents that we need to talk to Forge 3. So it just gives you a lot more credibility. And then once we knew that, we just started just hitting the phones as hard as, hard as we could, hitting conferences, doing webinars were important, but just massive activity and automation with a personal touch was probably key. I see so many people that get mad at like automated emails. It's like, dude, you know, yeah, you might be one person that gets mad, but if I send 300 and I get 10 people that respond and I get one person that's mad, that's a big win. You know what I mean? Like, like, so like I might close five people out of the 10 and you're over here mad because you got an email in your spam folder. Like, I, I don't care. Like, you know what I mean? Like, or like these guys on LinkedIn, right? The LinkedIn, everybody's like, oh, everybody's, giving me a sales pitch on LinkedIn. You shouldn't be doing that. You should learn more and more about each company you're reaching out to. From an enterprise standpoint, sure. But I got 38,000 insurance agencies to reach out to. So I'm not going to learn about every single one. And most of them fit within this bucket. So if you send 200 messages and again, you get 10% response rate or something like that, you get 20 people to reach out to you and you get one person that's mad. I don't care, right? Everybody's trying to preach... Uh, like, oh, you need to learn more about your prospects. Like, no, you need massive action. You laid down really good process. Yeah. And, and that's what it is. It's processes and then being able to scale those up and just looking at the results, right? And that's really it. Like, you can't, you look at open rates, you click, click rates, response rates. And if those are working, keep doing what you're doing, right? And we would hit people with the same sequences multiple times. They'd open it up and then sometimes they would respond, right? And then every once in a while, we'd see the numbers dip and we would change up the sequences of emails that we were sending. But I mean, overall, the best subject line that we ever had was, when is a better time? That's it. Are you available for a call? Yep. And everybody hates on it, but look at the numbers. Highest open rates. When is a better time? I can't tell you how many times I switched out. For yep. me, it was, oh, yeah. and well, you know, we started it back... Uh, years ago, but it was, are you available for a call? And when I've changed it with something more and I would just go back to it. Yeah. Everybody tries to get cute. Everybody tries to like, you know, think they're going to be the, the savant of emails and it's never sustainable, right? Unless you have a full team against it. And even yeah. like, I've seen, I've seen some people that, that do like serious email marketing and, but like they have, it's just a whole other world, right? right? All the systems they have in place, the research that got behind it. Yeah. I mean, that's not like transactional. These are completely transactional emails where you're sending the same thing to everybody, right? So it has to work for thousands and thousands of people, right? So it's, it's basically finding the lowest common denominator of what is the highest percentage of people that are going to open this and that are going to relate to this email without us having to change it for every person. Yeah. How do you save time, but have the largest effect? So- I want to fast forward a little bit. You grew Forge 3 like crazy. Then you made the leap over to Sempsi, mm -hmm. a venture-backed company. Yep. So a different world than kind of what you yeah. had been in. How were those changes for you? And why did you do it? So I love Forge 3. Great like leadership. Jeff, the CEO, did a fantastic job with the company. He really set the tone for like the culture was great. It was like kind of everybody worked hard. They were working remote like before remote was the thing. And everybody loved the customers, right? Which was amazing, which makes it so easy to sell. The problem was it just, we got to the point where 
I get antsy if I'm not continuously growing or continuously changing. And I think actually in my initial interview with him, I told him that I probably wouldn't be there when in five years. <laughs> I literally, I think I told him that. I do believe this. Yeah, because I just, it's not in my DNA to be stagnant. And it got to the point where we're like, okay, we're hitting the same numbers basically every month. We've talked to just about everybody out there. So we were getting diminished returns on what we were doing. And we weren't really willing to like, again, take massive action to scale up, right? To like get like 15, 20 reps to start to play with sort of the big boys in these spaces. And it's because we didn't have the venture capital backing. So that was kind of attractive to me about Semsi was they're very well backed, but with that comes strings, right? So I left because it was exciting, right? And I was like, okay, this is cool. I'm going to be able to do what I want to do right away. I can get out of the player coach role. I can really build the system that I want to build and the team that I want to build. And it's awesome, but it comes with strings. It comes with, I would say, unwanted pressures. Give me an example. You have to always keep your board happy, but still give realistic goals, right? So we were talking about usage and I never had to worry about usage before with the website at all. So I'm like, okay, not only now do I have to worry about selling the thing and keeping these customers on, but how do we get these people to use this thing? Right. And it's a completely understandable thing, but then also an unwanted pressure. I'm not saying we're doing this at Sempsi, but a lot of these other like companies at InsureTech or all over the place are laying people off simply because these VCs want more runway. Right. They want you to have 24 months in the bank of your payroll, right? Or, or something like that. And I mean, I get it because it's an investment, right? You can't look at it as it's people, but I told you this before, I like control and I don't like people telling me what to do. Right. So when you do that, it gives a signal that like you're not believing in your company or that you're not going to be where you want to be within the next year. And so they have to like weigh the risk. Whereas I would just be all in because I believe in myself. I believe in my team. I know we're going to get it done. But that sort of takes that decision out of your hands when you talk about like backing and things like that. Gotcha. So with the added investors, it pulled away some of the autonomy because the decisions that you are making are in order to, because with VC, I mean, you have to set yourself up for the next round right. or you have to set yourself up to be cash flow positive right. and continue to grow, which is usually the former. Usually mm -hmm. you're setting up for your next round. And as you mentioned, you know, runways went from a traditional 18 months to 24 to 36 months. Right in order to give time for things to turn around and valuations to come back. Yeah. But you lose, you've lost that autonomy is right. what you're saying. Yeah, in some cases. And it, it's just I'm trying to think of more specific examples, but overall it's not that bad because they give you the money and that's great because you can grow super fast, but then you have these crazy expectations, right? That you have to hit. Whereas like at Forge 3, okay, we would set these goals and most of the time we'd hit the goals, but if we didn't hit the goals, it's not like, the world comes crashing down, mm -hmm. right? So, but with VC, it's like, okay, you don't hit your goals, you're done, right? Mm -hmm. Or we're going to pull the funding, we're gonna, you're going to move somewhere else, right? Or we're not going to provide your next round of funding. And at SEMC, thankfully, we don't have to worry about that too much because we have some investors that have been with us since the beginning that have a bunch of money that are yeah. very well invested in what we want to do and they want us to kind of complete that mission. But you just see, I see this happening across the board. But it also goes to like the way the economy has been the past few years. I mean, people's like the pay of people has gone way up, right? And 
it's become outlandish. I mean, we talked to somebody that was like wanted 110K base for like an AE role. And I'm like, dude, we're selling a product that's $2,400 a year. Like I'm not going to, yeah. like a sales rep should make the company money, not be a net negative. What have been some of the things that when you made that change where you're like, I love this aspect? Mm-hmm. Having the money to spend was awesome. Our CEO is great. He's very hands off for the most part until you do something wrong. But, <laughs> <laughs> but just being able to invest in the areas you want to invest in, right? Like we want to get HubSpot. We want to get HubSpot Enterprise. Done. Didn't even question this like $30,000 bill that I handed to him. He's like, okay, cool. And he's like, why are you running this by me? I'm like, awesome. This is great. Also seeing how sales affects other parts of the business, right? Because with Forge 3 and just selling the website, it's like, okay, $250 a month. That's it. That's all the revenue that we're getting off this person, right? Whereas if we sell an agency at Semsi, now we have sort of the market access piece where we can start to make more money if they start writing business through us. We can start making money off of carriers. We can start all kinds of different, right? Ways to generate revenue for the company. Because you have a SaaS component Correct. and you have a usage-based component yep. where that usage base can have an unlimited upside. More exactly, exactly. So that was super exciting because you just had more of an impact, right? And felt less just like a simple sales rep. And it was more, and at Forge 3, it's not like I just felt like a sales rep, but it's a larger company. And we have, I think, like 50 or more people now. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you step into a bigger game. And what I liked was I actually was just able to figure it out pretty quickly, right? Which is great. I stumbled along the way. Like there were things where it was like, we shouldn't be doing that. Okay, now we're just going to pivot. But this was the first year anybody was selling SEMC, right? So that was tough. But the biggest thing was I got two reps that I started with that I trusted that were the right people that really helped us take off running. And that's incredibly important if you're starting a new team. And I think we already talked about this, but get the right people in there first, man. And get people that, if you can, get people that you know, that you know are going to be good. Because if you get two people in and one of them doesn't work out, that's going to hamstring you for the rest of the process. Yeah. It is, I think it's incredibly important. It's why you see a lot of times, right? People do ask, especially, I see it across everywhere. But in sales, quite a bit. People, they expect you as an executive that you've got a handful of people that are probably also going to to join, whether that's mm-hmm. sales managers, rev ops people, sales reps, whatever that may be, that you've got a pretty plug and play team that yep. you can bring in. Because it not to say you can't do without it, you definitely can, but it's going to be a huge catalyst. Right, right. So this is awesome. I think there's so many, you, you've hit so many points on this. The last thing that I want to ask just in general is if you can go back and have a conversation with your younger self, age is open, what would that conversation be? Mm, Don't sell AMC. (laughs) (laughs) What else would you say in said conversation? So be more grateful, I would say. And this is like everybody else is probably going to say like, you know, make a change faster or something like that. My problem is I'm always looking for a change. I'm always pressing, right? And I, like every time, every time I'm always looking for more. And it's helped me a lot throughout my career. 
but it's hurt me in some ways in that people maybe didn't know that how much I appreciate them, right? And I think that's important that builds more loyalty. I just move too fast at times, right? So if I could control that, I would say do my best to control that in certain scenarios, right? But other than that, yeah, just do your thing, young Zach. <laughs> Zach, thanks for coming on the show, man. This was great. Absolutely. Absolutely.